Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Billy Decker. Billy is an awesome guy who I got to meet at the URM Summit, which was a, a, such a good time, and I highly suggest that if you've been thinking about going to that, that you head out and go to it this year in Las Vegas. I will be there. Anyway, Billy, he's mixed, and I should say he's a mixer, not necessarily a producer, and he talks all about how he got there on this episode, along with tons of other great advice for artists and those who are aspiring to do what he does. But he has sold over 25 million RIAA certified albums, mostly in the country genre, which is a little bit different for this podcast. But as you can hear, Billy's, you know, as they say, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. He's worked with Kenny Chesney, Darius Rucker, Jason Aldean, Jamie Lynn Spears, Sam Hunt, and like so many, so many, so many more. You can really hear his great attitude, and we also get into that he has a new plugin through JST called uh, Billy Decker Bus Glue, which is awesome and it seems to be making a huge huge impression on people and it's super super easy to use two clients of mine started using it and really just love it so i'm psyched we got to talk about all this stuff in the meantime i want to tell you that the 2019 edition of get more fans is out right now it has tons of new info including a whole section on how i take bands from zero to 10,000 fans with some of my consulting work, and I wrote about all the ways I see it, and that is all up there. So please check that out, and without further ado, here's Billy and I's conversation. Hello, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great albums. In the past, I've been lucky enough to make great records with bands like The Cure, Animal Collective, The Misfits, and over a thousand others. I've written two books and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I am proud to present to you Atlantic Records' Inside the Album podcast. Atlantic has granted me unprecedented access to the artists, producers, managers, and A&R to discuss what goes into really making the great records they release. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new. I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm uh, like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. But first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No. And Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. You meet somebody who's kind of clueless about music. How do you tell them what you do for a living? All right, first we need to intro this. Hi, this is Jesse Cannon in Nashville, Tennessee. Today I'm going to be interviewing Jesse Cannon in Nashville. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Say the question again. <laughs> How do you introduce yourself to people who don't understand anything about music and tell them what you do? You know what? If I ever do meet somebody and they go, I know if I say I'm a mixing engineer... They're going to be like, what is that? Nine times out of ten, I say, this is how you describe me. People get a record deal. They get signed to a record company. They'll go hire a producer, who is the guy that's going to make their music, take them into a studio, record everything, and then I'm the guy that they give all that junk to and puts it down on a CD, and what you hear on the radio is what I do every day of the week. I like that. That's, that's, yeah. that's as good and succinct. I was going to say, and then if they don't understand that, I'll just say what I do for a living is I sit in front of speakers and watch TV <laughs> and get paid to watch TV eight, <laughs> nine hours a day. <laughs> nice. And I always say it beats working. 
you know, and, <laughs> and I've done those jobs. I've done all the garbage jobs in the world. You name it, I've done it, you know, so. And I don't want to go back and do it again. That's why I don't take anything for granted ever, ever. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that since obviously getting to do mixing all the time as opposed to being a record producer is not the most common path. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got there? I had children, oh, back in, you know, 96, my son was born and I was literally working 12 hours a day doing the engineer grind you know, up at eight, nine o'clock, be at the studio. Music Row opens up at 10 here in Nashville. That's when all the record companies, all the studios get rolling. They Everything's unionized here musician-wise. So sessions happen at 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock, two o'clock, and six o'clock. But the guys that are setting up all the microphones and recording everything, they have to be here an hour, two hours ahead of time to sound check, do all that stuff. And I literally was missing my children growing up. I've got two kids. My daughter's in college at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. She's 19, and my son is a senior at UT Knoxville. So long story short, I wanted to be able to be a dad and an engineer, so I had to figure out a good way to earn money and still see my kids grow up. And I found out that the mixers got paid more, drive all the fancy cars, do all the magazine articles, get all the chicks, you name it. They're like the rock stars in our industry. So I was like, I'm just going to do that. So I told everybody one day, and literally I just like flipped a switch and said, you know what? I'm a mixer. If you want a track, go talk to my buddy over there. And I had pre-talked to my buddy that I was sending all this recording and tracking business to. And I said, you reciprocate, you give me all your mixing business and I'll keep you filled up with that. Cause he hated mixing. I loved it. I didn't want to track. He loves that. So we kind of did that. He was one of the owners of a studio that did tons of demos back in the day, songwriter demos. So we just had music for days and we made a great living. And 25 years later, I'm still doing the same thing. Luckily, you know, People still call me just to mix, so. Nice, that's really cool. Tell me a little bit, you get into that philosophy, obviously Nashville is a little bit more of a machine than probably most of my audiences. Is there advice you need to impart to people to make sure you're getting good stuff to mix on your projects? You know what? Everybody has come up under the same batch of engineers tracking wise here in town for so long and they're so good. The studios are really good. The microphone choices are preamps. So even on like a bad day, just tracking quick little song demos, you know, it is still better than 90% of stuff that's going to come out of studios anywhere else in the world. You know what I mean? Just because we've got it refined so good and it runs like clockwork and it's so easy and smooth. You've got musicians that have the best of the best instrument-wise. They not only play great, but they've got the best gear. Top-notch, world-class studios. I mean, there's no denying that Nashville has plenty of studios. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's yes. kind of a yeah. Jesse, I'll be honest. It's a really rare sight when I get something that's considered bad, you know? Mm. And and I tell everybody, as long as you don't distort it, I'll be able to make it sound decent. I'll be able to get it there just as long as it ain't distorted. And then if it is distorted nine times out of ten, I'll just keep chasing that path down and make the song, the entire song distorted because you can't really fix something that's broke, you know? So I'm just going to break it even more. <laughs> and you're going to get a distorted kind of cool white stripe sound and song, you know what I mean? That is an interesting philosophy of how to roll with that. That makes total sense. So in your studio, one of the things that people don't know this about you is uh, you are an incredibly, incredibly fast mixer. Is there any philosophy that you've gotten that really guides how you get that to be the best quality versus speed? Yeah, I used to take a lot more time and I was finding that I wasn't trusting my gut and your Mm. first instinct. And I would go back and rehash. Two days later, I'm back to where I was two days ago. You know what I mean? And I lost two days and I was sweating it out and changing this and that and that. And if I would have just trusted my gut the first time, just like throw and go, almost like mixing a live concert. You know what I mean? You can't do over a live show. It's And I actually came up a little bit of that. I did a lot of that in college and right out of college because I couldn't get a studio gig. So I did a lot of live sound mixing. And I think that actually helped me, to be honest with you, that throw and go mentality where you just, I love the pressure. And I, I learned early on, if I just trust my gut nine times out of 10, I'm usually right. You know, I don't say that boastfully. It's just, there's this feeling where I know if I've got it, 
it's not going to get me better. And I'm just going to chase down a rabbit hole and I'll be here for two days. And You're totally right. I came from a very similar background of I work doing live radio broadcasts, recordings, and I had to do about a thousand of those where I just like, you got three songs to check it and then we're on air and you learn, you got to follow an emotion and then trust that emotion. Exactly. Exactly. So what happens if you're feeling adamant about something in the mix and the client is feeling adamant another way? What does that discussion normally look like? I was told early on by a big producer I look up to here in town. His name's Buddy Cannon. He has done gazillions of records. Most notably, he's famous for producing Kenny Chesney for the last two decades. He once said, the client is always right. Even when they're wrong, the client is always right. So the way I look at it is, is I approach it from a customer service basis. You're hiring me to do a service. I will do that service, but I equate it to almost driving through McDonald's, right? I am just, there's no difference from somebody going, hey, you want pickles and lettuce or ketchup on your burger? Me, I'm just going, hey, you want reverb and delay on your mix? It's (laughs) the exact thing. When I finish that project, guess what? I get paid. I get to move on and do another project. You actually have to live with that for the rest of your life. So why shouldn't you get exactly what you want, what you paid for? Why? Who am I to tell you that your project you got to live with the rest of your life should be something I think it should be? So I, I try to approach it as purely a customer service thing. Now, if I'm producing something, then I think that gives you a little leverage. But as a mixer... Nah, you you hire me to just make it sound good. I tell everybody I love to paint the picture. Pretend it's a picture frame. You give me your music, I'm going to paint and keep it within the frame. Anything you want to do within that frame is fine. If you get too close to the edges or that frame, I'm going to tell you, hey, maybe we should pull it back just a bit or a little wide, a little loud there. But I tell you what, anything you want to do within that frame, have at it. You know, that's your baby. Go for it. And my job is just to help you get there. End, done, period. Exclamation point. (laughs) Nice. Move on and do another one. Very rad. Is there something you believe in all this, like your mixing philosophy, that other people think you're crazy to think, but you're like, hell no, I'm right about that? Yeah, you know, on a, I found this, that I've been doing this forever in my template, in my signal path. And I was taught that compressor always has to be first in the chain, just like on a recording console. Your dynamics come first, then your EQs come next. And for some reason, I have from day one on acoustic guitars... Always put an EQ first, then compress it, and then limit it after that. So I don't know if that's acceptable. Uh, it sounds good. I've tried it the other way, and it didn't didn't sound as good. So I'm like, you know what? Maybe all those textbooks are, maybe they're just not quite as on point. You know, somebody once made that a rule way back in the day. And I mean, it's it stuck. I mean, you can put an EQ pre and post compressor on an SSL, can't you? Well, obviously you could patch it on the insert. So yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, the way it's designed it's supposed to be first. I don't know whoever deemed that correct, but I've done pretty good by not following that rule, at least with acoustic guitars, you know? It is funny because I, I do that rule the opposite way as well most of the time, and that's an interesting thing because I didn't know it was a rule. I just did what sounded right, so. Exactly, and you know what? At the end of the day, if it sounds right, it is right, you know? Every, music is so subjective, you know? So something that somebody likes, somebody else hates. So it's like, I think the key to being a successful mixer, and I'll elaborate on that thought is if you are able to make stuff sound good to the masses, that to me is a a good mixer. Somebody who is able to figure out what the general public likes to hear frequency and sonic wise, those guys seem to be the people that are mixing the most records out there. You know what I mean? Mm. A lot of people mix, but a lot of people can't make it sound good to the broad masses, you know? That's an interesting take. So what about, though, the emotional part of that? Like, do you think it's also that they're clued into the emotion, or do you think that's all one and the same? I think that's a part of it, but I think that the emotional thing is almost built in and it's taken for granted. They just, they either have that gift or they don't. You know what I mean? That is the thing is you can't teach the emotional part of it. I think it's almost like singing. You know, everybody can probably sing. Some people can sing more on pitch than others, but the ones that truly have that gift, there's something about that voice that you can't teach or learn. You know, you can take all the lessons you want, but you either have it or you don't. That that pleasing sound that the masses flock enjoy hearing. You know what I mean? Totally. I think you're bored with it. And I'd like to think that I was born with something that 
kind of pushed me down that path, you know, that I was able to decode and figure out. It's like, hey, I don't know what I'm really doing. I still don't after 25 years, but <laughs> I figured out how to make stuff sound good that a lot of people seem to go, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, let's keep calling him. Very rad. How about your process when it's a new artist who may not be very experienced compared to an experienced artist? Do you change anything up? You know, I don't. I try to treat everybody equally. And I have a saying like, have audio, will mix. So yes. I, don't care, I don't care if you're bluegrass, metal, dance, you name it. I'll just bring me files and I'll mix it, you know. But I do tend to try to educate a little more and handle with kid gloves. Uh, somebody that maybe is new to the process, especially when it comes time to like mix notes. People I work with all the time be like, okay, second verse, bring down the guitar 2dB, pan it hard left, uh, blah, blah, blah. Maybe step on it a little harder with a compressor and add a little delay at so-and-so milliseconds. Whereas somebody that's brand new will be like, hmm, I don't know why I don't like the second verse. It sounds it sounds kind of blue, but it needs to <laughs> sound green with maybe like purple on the sides. And I'm like, okay, I think I know what you're talking about. Blue is kind of sad. Green might be happy or yellow sunshine. So I try to decode that and then, yeah, take them by the hand and go, okay, what I think you want is maybe a little happier sounding vocal and we can turn it up. We can maybe put a little delay on it, make it sound a little more majestic, you know, darker or brighter or whatnot, you know? So in answer to your question, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to educate so that the next time they come in, they will be that person that says, oh yeah, go to the second verse, turn it up 2 dB, bam, <laughs> left and put this millisecond on. It's like, makes everybody's life easier, you know? Yes. How about what happens if somebody says nobody will hear that when you're going through a mix? Do you have a reaction to that? I've seen that happen, and I've heard about it happening. And the reason I never do that is because then I would become that guy sitting on his couch, sucking the salt off Fritos, waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> I don't ever want it. There's a few things you will never hear me say. And uh -huh. one of them, especially with songwriters and artists, is that doesn't matter. Mm. I mean, that's the first thing to get your ass fired. You know what I mean? Because then they go... Well, you don't care about me. You don't care about my music. You don't care about me. You're done. There's five other people I can call that'll mix records for me here in town, Decker. So never kiss a death. Never, 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 never. And you know what? Once again, the client is always right. That's just my opinion. And nobody cares about it. That's the same reason why I do not do anything on social media other than talk about either my kids, talk about music I've done mixing, or my cutting boards. I like to post those, but you'll never hear me talk politics, sex, religion. No, no, no. It's just my opinion. Everybody's got one, and nobody cares. It's like all them Hollywood people spitting off. It's like, no, just act. Just mix, Decker. That's all I'm here for. So I actually keep the TV on, Jesse, 24-7. I was going to ask you about this, so tell this story, because you told me this day when we hung out, and I, I thought it was amazing. Yes, and if I know you're a conservative client coming in, I will purposely turn it to Fox News. If I know you are a liberal left-leaning client, I purposely will put on MSNBC for you, and if I don't know what you are, I'm going to turn on the tennis channel, and that's going to keep us all out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So you talked a little bit about your boards. Uh, tell us about something that you are interested in good at outside of audio. Uh, well, the reason I like tennis is because I played tennis all through high school. That was my sport. I carried it on a little bit. College, did the intramural stuff, and then I laid it down for a while and then picked it back up about four or five years ago. Now, I haven't done it recently just because I got sick, had cancer a year ago, and that kind of slows everything down. But I'm about ready to pick it back up. So I really enjoy getting outside and sweating. I actually feel guilty because I sit in, in a studio in front of a console, a computer, whatever you want to call it. And so I actually feel guilty. And it's not like I punish myself, but on the weekends, you cannot keep me inside. I'm out, I mow my own grass. I'm out chopping wood playing tennis, sweating, you know, and I try to, I think I try to make up for it because I feel bad I'm sitting on my butt five days a week, you know. I am right there with you on that one. I love sunshine and trust me, you will see when people get sick of my mixes, 
you will see Billy Decker is relocating to a beach somewhere. <laughs> Understood on that as well. <laughs> How about let's go the opposite. What is your musical band of existence? What What is something that kind of kills you that you wish would change in music? The thing that actually keeps me hungry and keeps me going is... Every Friday, I jump on iTunes and check out new music, and I try to stay current on social media and follow mixers that I enjoy their stuff, you know? And what I love doing nowadays is getting my ass kicked in the mixing world. So just when I do something and think, wow, you know, I finally figured it out. A friend of mine that I've become friends with, his name's Mitchell Marlowe. He mixes, he did Stitched Up Hearts last record, and he just got done doing New Year's Day's brand new record, okay? And I literally got on iTunes last Friday, and I saw, oh, you know, because he and I were talking just late at night, you know. Uh, I sent him my software. He's testing it out, you know, my plugins and whatnot. And uh, he's like, yeah, check out this New Year's Day thing I just did when it comes out on iTunes tomorrow. So I get up, come in the studio, I check it out, and I literally, after about 10 seconds, I just shut the computer off and just said, all right, I suck. I'm done. I, I'm moving to Florida. I'm going to start digging palm tree holes for a living. I quit. You know what I mean? And so I just called him up, and I said, dude, how in the world do you do that? That is, un I, I can't do that. And the more we started talking, he started telling me what he was doing. And I'm like, oh, I'm doing the same exact thing. I'm down that path. I just haven't gone quite as far as he did. And maybe where I turned a little right, he was like, nah, keep your foot on the gas. I'm like, hit that a little harder over there. And sure enough, I got a little bit closer <clears throat> after talking to him, but I still, to this day, I love just waking up and having my ass handed to me and then trying to figure out how they did that. And that, that literally keeps me, keeps me going. You know what I mean? Keeps me hungry. I like that. And I think that's like a good exercise is that yet yeah, you do have to devote some time to find the music. Like, obviously, we're a little older, and I tell people all the time, like, especially when we were down at the URM, so it was shocking to me how many people were saying how they've just lost their love of music. And I talk a lot about how I put so much effort into it, and I'm now more into music than I've ever been, but it took so much of that effort it sounds like you have a really great discipline for that yeah and and i look at it every day when i'm coming in say i'm not doing a record say i'm just mixing demos or some independent project i literally <clears throat> consider that paid practice you know people are paying me to practice so and and i really do think correct me if i'm wrong but i equate mixing almost like being an athlete where an athlete has to stay in shape mixing your ear is actually a muscle. Am I not mistaken? Oh, I totally agree. The more you use it, the more you're in tune with it. I tell you what, if I've been mixing nonstop for two weeks and somebody slaps something in my lap to mix, it's like, boom, I am ready to go. If I take a vacation and I'm away from music for a week and I come back, the first couple mixes I'm doing, it takes me a while to get going. It's like my ears are a little weird. They're not as in tune and I can't listen quite as long and I get fatigued easier. So I really think that I consider it paid practice. And the more you do it and the more you use it, the the better you'll be and the easier it comes to you, you know? You're hitting on something that I always find so interesting because I, I totally am with you in that, like, there's two things. Is There's one that's like, you know, you see all these people, like, you know, it was impossible for Andy Wallace to have perfect hearing when he was at his peak on the charts. He's what's late 60s like no human alive can have perfect hearing especially after sitting for speakers but right. the, the muscles in shape and he knows what he needs to have and do there and the other thing is is uh like i get so weirded out like when you talk to some producers you're like yeah i've been tracking for three months i haven't mixed anything then they're gonna mix it's like mm, like if i know if i'm even a week away from mixing and mastering and i go back to it i'm literally walking in the forest for a few days uh without a yeah. light on Exactly, exactly. Now, I'll even take that one step further. I like mixing in a cold control room. Okay. All right. Now, I've dissected it over the years, and people say, dude, you are crazy. This makes no sense. Is it true that molecules in a colder environment are tighter together? So, in essence, if sound is traveling through the air and the molecules are closer together, I'm talking science here, does it not slow down the speed of sound going through dense air as opposed to hot where it's open 
can sound move faster than the speed of sound is maxed out at whatever it is, the speed of sound. Can it slow down in a colder, denser environment? This is a, a very interesting point. And if so, I always mix better and feel better in a colder environment, like 67 degrees, 68, 66, 60, you know, somewhere around there. If it gets above 70, something just does not sound right. I kid you not. So does slowing the speed of sound, if that does indeed happen, allow you to pick up on other stuff easier because it slows down? Huh. So this is voting very bad for your uh, beach lifestyle. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm in trouble. I'm going to have to go mix in a bar cooler or one of those beer caves at a bar. down <laughs> in Florida. That is pretty interesting. And, I, you know, you do think about it. It's like well, all the big old mix studios in New York were fucking freezing now that I'm thinking about it. So Right. Now, but they, they did that to keep those consoles cool, or yes. at least that's what they said. You know what I mean? At the same time, then you're sitting with your head hovered above those really hot consoles sweating. Yes. Makes no sense, does it? <laughs> Definitely interesting. We need to find somebody in the engineering community that's got like a science degree to put this myth, or Mythbusters. We ought to write a thing to that Discovery Show Mythbusters and see if they'll do something. I think you need to talk to Joey and see if you guys could uh, invent with the next set of plugins of uh, climate control. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so let's get into that a bit. So you have some awesome new plugins that came out. How did this happen? Tell us why these needed to exist. Joey actually came down when they were doing that nail the mix on me during the three days they were here setting up and and then we finally did the live broadcast. He pulled me aside when we were done. We went out and had dinner afterwards and had some drinks and he's like, you know what? You in country, I am all the way over here in metal, hardcore, doing my Joey Sturgis thing. He's like, for the last three days, I cannot tell you how similar you and I work, how almost identical, other than the source material, you and I are. That really got me thinking. He was like, I want to put myself in the country genre, and not for the sounds or the music, but just for the way we work. And he's like, I really want to do a bus glue on you because it's almost like doing another bus glue on me, you know? Just, you're immersed in country. So... He actually had me start from scratch and said, all right, I need like inventor stuff. I need a napkin sketch. So draw it out on paper. And so I drew out what I wanted my plugins to be. Say, for instance, on uh, my acoustic guitar path, I have that EQ and I always use like metric halo and then some kind of an 1176 to squeeze it, you know, some clone plugin, whether it's Bomb Factory or Waves or whatever, you know, and then I always like to limit it afterwards. Well, I don't know how they did it, but they used their code that they have at JST to emulate what an EQ would do and where I'm boosting. I had to document everything, and then they used their algorithms to recreate it. So not using those plugins that I always use, but their actual software or whatever, you know, I would boost acoustic guitars 3dB at like 12k or something to get a little slap. So he would plug that in. Okay, our JST EQ, we're using a six band. Decker likes to use that. So they plug it in. And what was cool is the plugins actually ended up sounding better than my actual signal path. You know oh. what I mean? And I don't know how they did it, but they cut the latency down. I was using like three on my vocals. I was using five plugins. So I, the delay compensation there, they actually got the delay compensation down to like a fourth huh. of what it used to be. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So they, they're more efficient, they're quicker, and they get me to where I need to be because I do the same thing every day. I very rarely change anything, you know what I mean, other than source material. So it, it's really cool to be able to use your own stuff and literally – you want to sound like me, all you do is put these things on, turn two knobs, and they're meant to be almost dummy-proof. So it takes all the guesswork out of having to EQ something, all that. An acoustic guitar is always going to need to be rolled off, in my estimation, around 125 hertz, and you're going to need to dip about 220, 230 hertz, about 2 dB, and then you're going to need to put a little bit of shimmer on the top end. You're going to need to spank it, and you're going to need to bring it up in the mix to get it above the rest of the stuff. So all you do is put my plug-in on, 
bang the needle back two to three dB and turn up the decorate knob. Every single plugin has a decorate knob, and that finishes off that signal path, and it's done. It's done. And what's really fun is I've sent it out to a bunch of my friends out there, and some of the comments getting back, they're like, dude, this is great. Thanks for doing this. It's like my friend Jeff Giuliano. I saw his quote. I'm a big fan of his mixes, so that's very high praise. Yeah, he called me this morning. He's uh he's mixing something that Bob Rock actually hired him to mix, like wow. an old like an old rock kind of in the Aerosmith vein. He's like, dude, I put your electric bus glue on. This thing is done. It took me ten seconds, and I'm already I've already speeded up my mix. It sounds great, you know. So it's like that that makes you feel good where you actually have made something that other people and especially your peers are using you know what i mean so it's kind of fun in that way but at the end of the day i really enjoy sharing knowledge i was shared a bunch of knowledge growing up i'm 100 percent self-taught even though i went to recording school i didn't get to mentor underneath like an andy wallace or uh in nashville would have been like a lynn petersell or mike shipley you know back from that age you know those are the guys or like a chris ward algae i didn't get to be an assistant and learn how to do it so i kind of had to figure out what i'm doing so this is kind of my way of saying hey guys you don't have to take 25 years you know what i mean so i know what that's like and it's kind of fun to actually get to help some up-and-coming engineers because at the end of the day you get to leave a legacy right so music comes and goes but you know what really stays is if people go that billy decker guy yeah he was a decent mixer but boy he was a good dude you know what i mean he picked up the phone he helped me mix he helped me do this this that's the stuff you think about when you're like 85 you know what i mean and people are talking about you rather than going oh yeah that was a good mix on that thing you did back in 1994 it's like nobody cares about that <laughs> what they do care about is you know you were a good dude. I'm 100% with you there. So how about some of that advice? Like, What is some advice you have to dispense often? The main thing I tell a lot of these young kids that are up and coming is A, stay off social media with your opinions. You're killing your career. I've got a friend who forms an opinion 100% on one side of the fence. And I repeatedly see him posting about all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, you have cut your income by 50%. Why are you doing that? You know what I mean? You have alienated half of your clientele just because of your personal beliefs and opinions. It's like, no, shut up. You're killing your career. The other thing that I always try to tell people is, A, never stop learning. B, don't think you're the best because the minute you think you're the best, a guy like Mitchell Marlowe is going to say, hey, check out New Year's Day Friday when it comes out, and you're going to feel like about two feet tall when he whoops your ass and makes it work. <laughs> The third thing is always ask questions. Do not feel, I tell everybody, the only dumb question, Jesse, is one you don't ask. You mm, know what I mean? So and to, this, to this day, every time I've spoken at the summit or anything for URM, I make sure everybody friends me on Facebook and has my email or whatnot. And I've opened myself up in these podcasts and I don't regret it. Now, it does get overwhelming because just about every day I'll get somebody, some kid from West Virginia that just started mixing and he's at, wanting me to listen to a mix and, and critique him. And all of a sudden I go, you know what? There's only so many hours in the day. And then I stop and go, you know what, dude? You put this out there, Decker, for everybody to do it. Be a stand-up dude. Be a man of your word. It's five minutes. You know what I mean? You can, you can stop and help somebody for five minutes. So to this day, I still, even though every once in a while I'm like, damn, I wish I had more time in the day. I'm like, you know what? I told everybody that they could do that, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stand by it. So and I still say that today, you know, ask questions and if I can answer, I will. If I don't know the answer, I probably have somebody like I could call you and you might have an answer. You know what I mean? One of my friends that does know will have an answer. That's really rad. Yes. It's exhausting, <laughs> but it's rad. <laughs> you know, one of the things, because we, we talk about this a lot of like that you have to stay the student. One of the things I have to say is, it's like, okay, so what is something you learned that kind of changed for you this late in the game? Like, what was a big epiphany moment that you've had recently about music or about mixing? Mixing wise, Kevin Churko shared his philosophy and signal chain on my two bus. And he also helped me out on my drum sub with parallel compression. And that, when I figured that out, that was like when the light bulb came on. And I, I tell everybody, I think when you figure out compression, how to use it either as a leveling device or as an effect, 
more importantly these days. You know what I mean? When you figure out how to compress a snare and get that 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 dark thuddy sound and then be able to parallel in with the real, you know, and get stuff big and loud without crushing it, you know, that to me, when I figured out compression or, or when it was explained to me and shown to me finally, you know, after I was a grown ass man, I wish I would have mm-hmm. had 19, I'd be a lot further down the road, but yeah, that, that, and that's when I really started having fun. Cause that's when I think I became competitive and it's like, okay, I listened to something that, like last Friday, when I listened to that, I'm like, you know what? He whooped my ass, but I'm I'm in the ballpark. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Not too far behind him, and that's a good feeling. So yeah, I would say when when you figure out compression, that's that light bulb moment for me. Nice. So let's talk a little bit more about what went into the development of this plugin. Like, how did you long did you guys do it? What was the process like to make this plugin? The process took about three months, and like I said, I napkin sketched them out. And then submitted uh, actual signal paths of audio. I took some audio I had and like made nothing but I put an acoustic guitar and I put what I was using on it and then let them decode it and dissect it however they wanted to to put it under their meters and see how needles are moving or whatnot, you know. But as far as the graphics go, it was funny because I said, all right, Joey, here's what I want this to look like. I'm going to tell you like two words and you send that off to your graphics. I think he uses some guy in Sweden. This guy's like a genius. I think all Swedes are like yes. computer geniuses. You know what I mean? Like tune tracks and everything. Swedes are like on it. You know what I mean? Really is true. Also, some of the best recording studios ever. Oh, yes. And some of the best songwriters, pop music, metal music. I mean, Swedes got it going on, dude. Yeah. But anyway, I said, I'm just going to tell you two things. I'm going to say HBO and... I'm going to say Westworld. <laughs> okay? I want my plugins to look like that train that's always at the beginning of Westworld, that old steampunk, mm-hmm, uh-huh. big chunky meters kind of beat up, a little bit of wood, a little bit of metal that's scuffed up, you know, like a real warm, old-timey, steampunk, Chattanooga choo-choo, railroady thing, you know? And sure enough, they came back, and boy, that guy nailed it, you know, because they look like these real warm analog meters. You know, I, I I sent them some pictures of analog VUs that I wanted to do. I didn't want, you know, meters going up and down. I wanted the old needles going left and right, you know. So I think they nailed it. I think it looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks great, actually. And then after that, once the graphics are done, then the coding begins, and they would send me... Uh, versions of the plugins, and then Joey and I would both beta test them. And uh, Joey's got like a Q&A team up there as well that goes through. But it was funny because I think the guy doing some of the coding lives in a southern hemisphere somewhere. You know what I mean? And you know that old saying that when you're in Australia, you flush the toilet in the southern hemisphere, it goes the opposite way. Water. Yes, yes. Okay, so I got a couple of my meters back or my my volume pots that actually turned up in reverse. So instead of like a guitar amp plug-in left to right, it was like right to left. And I'm like, dude, are you in the Southern Hemisphere with that toilet bowl going the wrong way? I'm like, we don't go right to left, we go left to right. (laughs) We went through a couple revisions and got everything where I thought they sounded good. You know, uh, the acoustic came back and it was a little bright. So I'm like, you know what? Maybe instead of three dB, drop that down to like one and a half dB at 12 K and let's maybe bring it up a little higher, closer to 14 K, which is way higher. You're not really going to hear it, but you're going to feel it brighter. You know what I mean? And it won't get so bitty on top. So we went back and forth about four or five times over the course of three months. And then Joey was like, dude, we got it. We're done. Let's go. And he just decided a launch date, and here we are. You know, they've been out, I think, January 1, so it's been a couple months, you know. Mm, Very rad. So how about mixing philosophy on arrangements? A lot of people talk, like, about how you have to be a songwriter. Is that a big thing for you, or is it more just getting the song to feel right, or are you doing a lot of, like, songwriting arrangement changes in your stuff? To me, if you were a race car driver, Mm -hmm. and you just knew how to drive, but knew nothing about engines, I think the race car driver that actually knows about engines might win the race. 
all things mm. considered equal. He knows how far he can push it, engine, blah, 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 pace it out, whatnot. I think the more you can know about music in general will make you a better engineer. Mm-hmm. I, I actually played in bands in high school, in college. That was like my part-time job. And my biggest regret was I did not, even though I've got a musical background, I do not have a theory background from college. I actually wasted a college degree on criminal justice from the oh, University wow. of Nebraska. So if you want me to like try to read you a law or lawyers mm. or arrest you or something like that <laughs> as law enforcement, I'd have better chance than actually trying to describe theory to you. If I could go back and do it again, I would have got a theory background because the other day we were doing some uh, – I was tweaking a mix for a, a guitar player who had a great theory background, one of the top uh, acoustic guitar players here in town. He was co-producing something. And he was like, dude, you know what? We don't need to draw out that lead vocal. Just put it in the key of A flat. Take out the third sharp, diminished minor, over, under, <laughs> pop out the C, B, turn that one upside down, and hit go. And it was like perfect. You know what I mean? And I'm like, well, I, I just thought it was in the key of A. I didn't know you need to hit all these take notes out and put them in, and it'll pull it the wrong way when we go to this change. So if that would make me a better engineer today that's my biggest regret and i'm still not opposed to almost i've been thinking about it now that my kids are in college and we're empty nesters i may take uh like a community college theory Mm. online or something like that just to make myself more knowledgeable you know but i think that the more you know about your craft and trade i think will make you better now i do know some engineers can't clap on beat can't dance (laughs) have no they're still great you know Mm -hmm. but the ones i tend to gravitate towards are very very musical and they're either instrumentalists vocalists or they're like so you think you can dance champions you know they can rumba all over the place or whatever i think most of them can't dance (laughs) most of them can't dance They think they can, but they can't. This is probably the case. So how about this? Talk to me about some really influential gear for you. Like, where are some things that you think maybe uh, people aren't clued in that are some hidden, really great pieces of gear that go into your sound? For me, I'm 100% in the box. And my best piece of advice, and since all I do is mix... I mean, I've got my set of plugins that I use, and now with my bus glue, I'm using those more than ever. They're called bus glue, but with the exception of the master and probably the drum one, you can put them on individual channels, like the bass uh, will replace your bass chain. Just put my plug in on, boom, it's ready to go. Uh, Same with the electric, acoustic, keyboard, stuff like that. So yeah, I use those just because I like the sound, and it's exactly what I was using, but now better. So what makes the exception? And Maybe everybody's not going to also understand the difference between a bus and a track. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and why those plugins are different and what that really is? So for a bus processor, you would have, like, say you've got two acoustic guitars. You paint them hard left, hard right, maybe not even EQ them. Uh, you'll run them both to a aux track, bus out both of those, and then just use one EQ, one compressor, one limiter, one spatial divider, whatever you want on that bus, and then you control both of those with just one fader. Mine you can actually use that way, or you can just put it on the individual instrument, and it works just as well, if not better. So I like using those. I cannot tell you the importance of getting familiar with a set of speakers and knowing them inside and out and trying them. I have had the same speakers since 2001. The last studio I was at, they had me try everything. They were like, Decker, we will buy you anything. The studio's like, the amount of work you're doing, I had a little kickback they were giving me, whatnot, but I was bringing a lot of business. So they're like, anything you need, we'll get. So I said, well, let's go down the speaker pass. So they brought in $10,000 near fields, $5,000, $200, and I could not get away from these Mackie 824s. Wow. And I've had them from day one. The only thing I did do is I upgraded to the Mark IIs. And for me, that went from going from 2D to 3D. I can hear, it's like I can hear my reverb tails and my delays. But other than that, that's the only difference. Now, I do have them hooked up to like a 18-inch Quested sub that's barely on. But I know it so well that without me even checking on any other format, I can mix in my studio and 
I am going to be 95% of the way there. This is something I'm very big on too. I've been, I've only had two pairs of monitors in 21 years. And I think that that's the thing is people don't talk about that monitors are more like a relationship and not like a gear upgrade that once you get to a certain level of good, you should just form a relationship, even to, you know, kind of like Dayton. You don't need to sit there and think about Prince Charming all day. You can sit there and go, you know, I got a good thing here. We have a good relationship. So, but do you carry that into to gear? Are you trying lots of new gear all the time? Or is this really the thing where you stay steady with that relationship? Yeah, I've been on Pro Tools. I was on Pro Tools 8 until about three years ago. Wow. <laughs> so I, I was, I think the first number one I ever had, I didn't even know. I mixed it in Pro Tools 5 and I was putting samples in, and that was even before delay compensation. So now, when I hear this thing on the radio, it just sounds like tennis shoes in a dryer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just like, good lord, what was I doing? So I went over to Pro Tools 10 about four year, three or four years ago, and I tell you what, I've got everything I need. All my buddies that are on Pro Tools 11 or 12, every day I'm seeing a post on Facebook or something, this motherfucker's crashed again. Oh, I hate Pro Tools, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what? Mine is rock solid. I've been using the same stuff, and now I've got my bus glue, so I know it works. I've heard it on the radio. I've got two more things on the radio right now that I've just used that bus glue on, and it sounds great. So it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The only thing that changes for me is the source material these days. So, But you are talking about hearing from other people the that they're doing something different. So that doesn't drive you to put new plugins into your thing? Or is it more just usually that it's like a technique and you got to use the stuff that you've always been using to get there? Yes. Yeah. What they're doing is they're using the same stuff I'm doing, but maybe they're using a sample that I thought I was spanking at 200 hertz to get that fat meat. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He's like, no, no, dude, you're compressing it. You're paralleling it. That's correct. I'm using a fat sample dry, no verb. I've got it clipped off. So it's just this, but you need to boost it at 168, dude, not 200. You're not getting that thump down below and then maybe put a high pass. So it's losing all that, saving that energy below that or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm doing all the right stuff with all the tools I've got. The only thing would be like technique, you know, and just altering maybe some settings within there. But yeah, I'm at a point now where I'm having fun figuring out stuff, knowing how to figure it out, being able to make a phone call to somebody like yourself or like my buddy I was talking about or like Jeff or whatnot, you know, and we're all doing the same stuff, but we've just got very slight movements that is going to really take it over the top. You know what I mean? Yes. And I, I think that that is the big thing at the level you're at. So let's also talk about something else at the level you're at. Do you do anything different for delivering mastering? You're, you're obviously delivering masters for number one hit songs. Like what what happens when you deliver a master? You deliver tons of mixes. You deliver in one thing. T tell us what that looks like. That looks like one mix. I will get it where I think it sounds good. I'll be delivered the audio. The producer, nine times out of 10, I will send to them. They let me mix unattended. So I'm by myself watching one of those three TV shows we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Depends on what mood I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll send them a reference mix. Nine times out of 10, they will give me notes, mix notes, and say, okay, do this, 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 send me another mix back. Then they will come over, sit with me at the studio, maybe make a few more moves, bring the artist with them, and that'll happen maybe once or twice, if even. Sometimes it's just done over the phone, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or over email. Then I always deliver, whether I'm doing a demo, an indie record, a minor label, major label, I always deliver a master with no limiting on the back end so it can be delivered to a mastering house. And then I will always, within the last four, probably three or four years, I've started supplying my clients with a mastered version. I master on the way down in my signal chain. So I don't print the mix and then go back and master it offline or whatnot. You know, I actually master it on the way down. So I'll print what I call a master version. And now, mind you, I'm not a mastering engineer, but I've got a lot of friends who are and have shown me and I've sat with them long enough that I can get close enough. And the only reason I do that is twofold. Some clients can't afford 
to go to a mastering house. So it's just an added bonus that I get. I don't charge extra for it. It's just an extra bounce. I just put my mojo on it and boom, you know, kind of a, an extra thing that I'll offer to make mixing with Billy Decker a better deal. But the last thing I had just released on the radio, Dustin Lynch has a song called Riding Roads that is his new single. And the mastering house, my friend Andrew Mendelson over at Georgetown mastered it. And he actually preferred my mastered, and I'm doing quotes with my two fingers right Mm -hmm. now, my mastered version. He said, I like that better. That's what I'm going to work with. And I'm like, well, dude, I've got you like almost brick walled out. He's like, nah, I got a few tricks up my sleeve. I'll take care of you, Decker. So he actually preferred the hot mix, or he calls it a heated mix, you know, Mm -hmm. a heated unheated. Me trying to just provide extra value actually sounded better in that instance, and he actually mastered off of my master, you know? So yeah, go figure. That's really interesting. So I want to be respectful of your time, so why don't you do a little self-promotion, tell us about these plugins a bit more, tell us where people can find you, all that fun stuff, uh, to wrap this up. Yeah, well, if you at all are interested in being like Billy Decker, which I probably wouldn't recommend, but I do enjoy a good two fingers of whiskey now and then. Contrary to popular belief, I can dance, so I'm one <laughs> of the few engineers that can. I can clap on beat, mm-hmm. and uh, I can I can strum a D chord. So, no, I'm teasing. If you want to find uh, my plugins or find out more about them, uh, joeysturgistones.com. You can download them. You can get them. And the cool thing that he and I agreed on early on, I said, the only way I'm going to do this is if people that buy it have direct access to me and have a question about what's going on under the hood, they're not going to get like a customer service line. I want direct access to them. So he will actually provide you with my email or my personal info. If you buy these things and have a question, it's like, why wouldn't you want to come to the source and ask, hey, what's going on? How can I make this sound better? Who wouldn't want to talk to the guy that built them? You know what I mean? That's so rad. Yeah, and I enjoy it. I enjoy talking to people that get to use it and and hope it helps make them sound better and even better than that, make them sound like me because then more stuff will be on the radio that sounds like me and I'll listen to the radio more. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Oh, enough about me, Jesse. Let's talk about me. Don't you think I am? Come on. A legend in my own mind. You have your own site as well. Can you tell people about that? Yeah, it's uh, just billydecker.com. I built it with GoDaddy. But you can go there and see what I've done. I try to keep it updated, uh, but I'm also on Instagram at DeckerBoards, D-E-C-K-E-R-B-O-A-R-D-S, and it's kind of a play on my little cutting board hobby I got, but I've got more music actually posted on there. And then just under Billy Decker on Facebook, and if you ever have a question, just message me through that, you know? Don't be sending me crazy pictures or nothing like that. But <laughs> you can definitely send me a uh, a mix and I'll listen to it if you have questions. Like I said, I just I really enjoy helping people and someday maybe when I need help, one of you guys will say, "Hey Decker, call me. I got mm-hmm. an answer." If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 